Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, a discussion about the ways in which immigrants successfully and, in some cases, not so successfully integrate into the United States. Our guest is Mary Waters, a sociologist at Harvard who chaired the National Academy of Sciences panel on the integration of immigrants into American society. And she also edited the mammoth study that was published by that panel at the end of 2015. The study itself was nonpartisan and non-ideological. It was meant to provide fact-based analysis on how immigrants are integrating across a range of socioeconomic and sociocultural dimensions. So, for instance, the educational system, the labor market, health, crime, family stability, and other things. This was actually one of two studies about the impact of immigration on the U.S. published by the National Academy. The other one covering the economic and fiscal impact of immigrants. And in the coming weeks, Alpha Chat will have some guests on to discuss that report as well. But... A quick note about this episode. Obviously, because of the nature of the report, this is a very America-centric episode. Uh, We do talk about the dynamics that more generally make it easier for immigrants to integrate into society, and also about the ways in which the U.S. differs from other countries uh, in Europe and other places in terms of how quickly and how successfully immigrants fully integrate. But I thought I'd still mention that just to give our overseas listeners a bit of a heads up that this particular show does have kind of a home country bias. But for now, here is my chat with sociologist Mary Waters on the integration of immigrants to U.S. society. Enjoy. Uh, Mary Waters, thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. You've been uh, researching immigration for quite some time. Uh, Why don't you start by telling us how you became interested in it? Well, I started out in sociology about 30 years ago. All of four of my grandparents were immigrants. And my first project was looking at people whose grandparents and later great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents were immigrants and how they identified ethnically. And I studied Irish and Polish and Italian Americans. And from there, I began to be interested in new immigrants who were coming to the U.S. from around the globe and began various studies. I did some studies of Caribbean immigrants and how they related to African Americans. And then we looked at many different immigrant groups in New York City. And I've been studying immigrant integration for a long time now. Can you tell us where your grandparents were from? All four of my grandparents were from Ireland. Okay. And I think I think Ireland was one of the uh, places that you mentioned when you were saying that you studied Irish and Italian and uh, Polish immigrants. 
Yes, yes. And I wrote about how people who were descended from the European immigrants who came in the 20th century developed optional identities. They could be Irish or Italian when they wanted to be, and when they wanted to just blend in, they didn't mention it. And ethnicity was something that they enjoyed, and it was something that brought joy to their lives. Okay, and let's talk about the report itself now. Can you just give us a sense of how it came together, who participated, and what its ultimate objectives were? Right. So the National Academy of Sciences is is founded to provide objective scientific advice to Congress. So when Congress or any uh, element of the federal government wants to know about a scientific question, they will create a committee at the National Academy of Sciences to uh, investigate it. So if they want to know if autism is caused by vaccinations or something like that, which it isn't, they would create a committee to study that. And so they were interested. We were sponsored in part by uh, U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, which is part of Homeland Security. And they were interested in whether immigrants were integrating into American society and how uh, that was going across many different dimensions. So they asked the National Academy of Sciences to put together a committee. They asked me to chair it. And then there's a long process that you go through in finding the experts across different academic backgrounds uh, to serve on the committee. So we had demographers, sociologists, psychologists, geographers, political scientists, economists. And we put together this committee that covered all of the different areas we wanted to investigate. And the idea is that we're just going to talk about the objective scientific findings about what's happening with immigrants. Okay, and let's talk about some of those findings. But first, let's talk about uh, the very concept of the integration of immigrants, because I think when somebody who's not a scholar uh, hears that, they probably think of immigrants just sort of falling into the slipstream of our daily lives so that, you know, I guess language comes to mind, you know, finding their way into the education system, getting jobs, sort of things that we all do every single day. But in fact, along socioeconomic, sociocultural, and political dimensions, there are a number of different ways in which we can quantify what's happening. Uh, so can you sort of take us through what some of those specific measures are and what they tell us? Yes, we looked at many different dimensions of integration. So we looked at socioeconomic outcomes. We measured immigrants and then the children of immigrants in terms of their education, their occupation, their income, poverty rates. Uh, we looked at political integration. So we looked at naturalization, voting, civic participation. We looked at sociocultural measures, so English language use, whether or not you maintain your prior foreign language if you had one, crime rates, how do immigrants compare to natives in terms of their religious backgrounds and, and practices. We investigated attitudes. Uh, so do immigrants hold different attitudes towards things like gay marriage than native-born Americans do? We looked at intermarriage patterns between immigrants and native-born Americans we looked at uh, spatial assimilation. Do they live in enclaves or ethnic neighborhoods, or do they live 
alongside native-born Americans. We looked at family structure. Do immigrants have similar family structures to native-born Americans? And we also have a chapter on health. So how do immigrants and their children differ in terms of their health outcomes than native-born Americans. So it was a very comprehensive look at immigrant integration. We looked at whatever research had been done, and if there wasn't research that answered the question, we did some of the research ourselves. We had a sister panel that was looking at the fiscal and economic impacts of immigrants. So we did not look at that, but we really looked at every other aspect of immigrant integration. And maybe I could say something about how we defined integration. You could think of integration as being pretty synonymous with assimilation. Uh, some, I think everyday Americans sometimes talk about assimilation. But we defined integration as the process of native-born Americans and immigrants coming to resemble each other. And we measure that both over time since immigration for the immigrants themselves and then by generation. So do the children of immigrants look more like native-born Americans than their parents do? And that was the major measure that we, we looked at, is do they converge with native-born Americans? But then we also measured well-being. So are immigrants better off because they are becoming like native-born Americans? So we looked at whether integration led to greater well-being for immigrants and their children. In general, it did, but we found that there were some areas in which becoming American led to less well-being for immigrants and their children. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's actually go straight into that, because something that I, I very much liked about this report and the sister report was that they brought quite a bit of nuance to a topic that so often um, is dominated by kind of uh, very general headlines and with not enough attention, I think, paid to all of these different complex variables. And so let's start by talking about the findings on uh, the areas in which integration uh, tends to be good for immigrants. Uh, You just mentioned, I think, schooling. Um, There were a few others. uh, So can you take us through those? Yes. So in terms of socioeconomic outcomes, immigrants come, some with very high levels of education and some with very low levels of education. But overall, if you look just at immigrants in general, their children make great strides in terms of uh, converging with native-born Americans. So the average, say, Mexican-American first-generation immigrant Uh, male has eight years of education. But the average child, the child of a a Mexican immigrant when they are um, a young adult, has 12.5 years. So that's a real uh, movement uh, for Mexican Americans. And you see that for all of the different groups, that the immigrants come with less education and their children do uh, much better. Uh, In terms of occupation, we see the same kind of movement. So immigrants tend to be concentrated, especially low-educated immigrants. They're concentrated in jobs that native-born Americans don't want to do, so service jobs and farm jobs. And by the second generation, uh, they're moving into 
much higher level jobs, jobs that come with health insurance and retirement and those kinds of things. So we see a lot of progress, greater well-being for immigrants and their children on those measures. We see lower poverty rates. So the first generation has a higher poverty rate, the second generation lower, and then the third even lower than that. In terms of labor force participation, it's a little bit more complicated. Immigrants have very, very high labor force participation rates. So especially compared to native-born with low education, they are much more likely to be in the labor force. By the time you get to the second and then third generation, they look more like native-born Americans. So their labor force participation rates might go down a bit by the second and third generation. Yeah, and I I think even within that employment breakdown, we can go further. Uh, In the report, you found that male immigrants uh, are more employed than the native-born, but female immigrants are less employed. But again, as you just said, that starts to change by the second generation where things start to vary by uh, race, ethnicity, and gender. That's right. We did find a troubling trajectory for black immigrants where their labor force participation rates are much higher in the first generation. And by the second generation, they look more like native-born African-Americans than like native-born whites. So there is a problem with their labor force participation going down. Sure. I mean, I guess the natural question uh, to follow that one then is whether or not it's the case that black immigrants then end up being uh, susceptible to, I guess, the same legacy of institutional discrimination uh, that native-born African-Americans do. Right. It's it's hard with census data to say unequivocally that it's racial discrimination that's leading to this. But there are other studies uh, in the social sciences pointing to discrimination as one of the factors, yeah, in explaining that. There's a section uh, in the report that looks at the differing composition of immigrants who are arriving, uh, especially in recent years, there's been a change, and it looks like annually arrivals from Asia have already exceeded um, annual arrivals from Latin American countries. Can you talk about how those two different groups uh, integrate into uh, the U.S. um, and whether or not that will also have a kind of a noticeable impact on things like the U.S. economy or anything else? Right. Since 2008, since the fiscal crisis, Asians have surpassed Latinos as new immigrants coming into the U.S. each year. And they tend to have higher levels of education and to have their children have more rapid educational attainment than Latinos who take a little bit longer to converge with the native born. So One of the impacts of that is that you have people who are paying taxes more quickly, paying higher taxes, contributing more to the economy and doing better in the economy. You also have one of the reasons that the number of Latinos coming in each year has gone down is not because of legal immigration, but because basically undocumented immigration has been flat since 2008. So there are people still coming in undocumented, but the number of people leaving is about equal. So there's been no net gain. In fact, there's been a decline since 2008 in the number of undocumented people. And they tend to be concentrated in the lowest paying and the least desirable jobs. And already we are seeing labor shortages in those kinds of jobs around the country uh, because um, there just are fewer people than the labor market needs. Mary, from 
everything you just said, it sounds like a lot of the topics that get the most attention now are sort of outdated topics. In other words, a lot of what drives the immigration debate in the U.S. is about undocumented workers. But as you just mentioned, uh, the number of undocumented workers in the U.S. seems to have been flat for the better part of the last decade. And furthermore, a lot of it has to do with the extent to which low-skilled immigrants are competing with low-skilled native-born workers uh, for jobs and driving down their wages potentially. But from what you just said, it turns out that now the mix has changed and high-skilled immigrants are coming in greater and greater numbers. Uh, So it seems like, in some sense at least, the debate is, if not obsolete, maybe it doesn't quite deserve the attention it does, or maybe the attention should be shifted to another part of the debate. Uh, Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Uh, Many of the aspects of the immigration debate are either factually wrong or very outdated, and they really are not talking about we we really are not talking about the reality of immigration on the ground right now. Yeah, and and is there anything else uh, that you would choose to emphasize that I haven't mentioned? Yeah, one example I would give is is crime. A lot of the debate about undocumented immigrants and about immigration in general talks about immigration as somehow causing crime or increasing crime rates. And the reality is that immigrants, including the undocumented, commit crimes and are incarcerated and arrested at much lower rates than native-born Americans. So immigrants actually decrease the crime rate. And uh, areas where there are a large number of immigrants have lower crime rates than areas where there are fewer immigrants. And the whole idea that immigrants are bringing crime into the U.S. is factually wrong. And it's interesting because it was also a belief back 100 years ago about European immigrants that they were bringing in crime. And it was it was untrue then, too. Uh, so it's really a red herring that that doesn't deserve to be debated. Yeah, and I want to ask about how localities uh, differ in terms of integrating uh, immigrants. So what do we really know about, for instance, how immigrants integrate when they move to, let's say, rural areas versus urban areas or places that have not had a high share of immigrants in the past versus gateway cities like New York or Los Angeles uh, that already have a lot of immigrants and already have a lot of uh, the institutions with which to process them and integrate them. What does the report tell us about that? It's a really good question. Since the mid-1990s, immigration has spread out and become a national phenomenon so that immigrants are settling in parts of the South and the Midwest that have not had immigrants in some cases ever before and in other cases for a century or more. And we're just really beginning to look, as social scientists have, to look at the difference by locality in terms of how immigrants integrate. And because we're stalled on federal immigration policy, a lot of states and local areas are developing their own 
policies towards immigrants. So some places are becoming much more welcoming to immigrants, and some places are becoming more punitive, uh, especially towards undocumented immigrants. So it's really varying now um, the experience of immigrants by which state and even which locality you live in within the states as to whether or not you are facing a more welcoming environment or a uh, less welcoming environment. But one thing we do know is that gateway cities such as New York, Los Angeles, Houston, Chicago, Miami have institutions and they have developed their institutions in ways that they have experience in integrating immigrants and they are less troubled by it, more experienced with it so that their schools have better ESL programs and their hospitals are better at having translators available. So there is some uh, ease of integration in those cities. Sure. I'd imagine also a higher likelihood that uh, a friend or a family member who already immigrated there perhaps years ago um, will already be there to help ease the transition for uh, later family members and friends to arrive. That's true, although when uh, immigrants started to spread out to places like Georgia and North Carolina and Iowa and even the, the Dakotas and Montana, they did so by following friends and family. So immigration is very much a network phenomenon. People tend to go where they know other people. But yes, having had other immigrants come before you and having the ease of dealing with new immigrants uh, for the local government or the local institutions paves the way. Yeah, you mentioned that some localities crack down and some localities actually do things that try to make it easier uh, for immigrants to come and to uh, integrate. I'd imagine that in some cases that's driven by a fear of demographic trends. So if a locality, a city, a county is worried that a lot of their young people, for instance, might be moving to the cities, then as a way of bolstering local demand, maybe local housing markets, uh, immigrants would be a good source of that demand. Uh, Do you have uh, any examples at the ready that that you like in particular uh, for how that can work and how maybe that's been tried in the U.S.? Well, I think there has been a lot of research on the housing market in a number of different areas around the country in California. Without immigrants fueling demand for houses, the housing market would have been growing much less quickly. A lot of rural areas in places in the Midwest that have been losing population for a long time find that now their schools are are filled back up again and their their housing market is is being reborn so there are areas that are very grateful for the population demand that immigration creates so that the immigrants coming in have have stopped the the outflow of people staying on the topic of how either the federal or local governments uh, can help with the process of integration I wanted to turn to the impact that the design of different kinds of visas can have on that process. What do we know about it? Well, we know that in the last few decades, there has been a plethora of different kinds of visas that people have come in on. And there are growing numbers of, for instance, H-1B visas and temporary protected status visas and all kinds of different ways that people get to the United States. And unlike Canada, where the immigration visa status of people is something that you can connect to their census data and to their 
income tax data so that you could say, well, if somebody came in under a family visa after 20 years, they have this kind of income trajectory. You can't do that in the U.S. because we don't integrate those uh, statistical systems. So I think that it would really be helpful to the government in creating a rational immigration policy if we could do that kind of research. And it's it's possible to do because Canada now does it. But the U.S. does not keep the data that they have on what kind of visa you came in on in a way that uh, researchers can connect it to outcome data. That seems like quite an own goal. No matter what you think about the immigration system, that seems like uh, quite an important lapse. It is one of the recommendations of our of our report, which is that whatever is done with um, immigration reform, if anything is, or even if we remain stalemated, that we need to look at a way to be able to look at the long-term outcomes of immigrants and trace it back to how they got into the country. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, H-1B visa, and for our listeners overseas, that's essentially the, the high-skilled visa to come work in the U.S. There's a number of other categories, but I, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of nightmarish bureaucratic process that seems to be attached to any American visa system and what impact that might have on integration and also in just turning people off to, in some cases, the potential to ever get a green card or to become a U.S. citizen or a long-term, I guess, U.S. permanent resident. Because I know quite a few people who've had to go through it. In many cases, they are brilliant people who nonetheless had to hire very expensive and very qualified uh, immigration attorneys to try to navigate it. And it's this grinding year after year process. And maybe parts of that system are deliberately designed that way. But it seems <laughs> like something that's geared towards turning people off from staying in the country for a long time. Yes. Our immigration system has developed in a very piecemeal way and not in a very rational way. So that after 1965, when we revised our immigration system, we gave the same number of visas to every country in the world. So the country of Madagascar got the same number of visas as Mexico. And many uh, scholars have pointed out that that doesn't really make a lot of sense because there is a lot more demand and a lot more integration of the economies of Mexico and the U.S. and a lot more ease of travel, etc. And so the idea that every country in the world gets the same number of legal visas means that some countries, especially countries that have previous immigrants here who have a backlog of family members who want to come, have waiting lists of 20, 30, 40 years. So they're processing applicants for green cards for, for visas to come to the United States of people who applied back in the 1980s and 1990s, which you know, does not make any sense that somebody would wait that long for a green card. And in part, that's that's one of the reasons we have had uh, such a high growth in undocumented immigration, is that it, it's not like you can get in line and wait and then get, wait for your number to be called because the line is too long. You cannot ever get here. And there is a demand for these uh, workers. So there is a contradiction in our 
immigration system where we have not allocated the number of visas that we want to give out in a very rational fashion. Sure. And there's obviously an ongoing economic debate about whether or not the U.S. economy should have more uh, lower skilled immigrants or should it have fewer. But it sounds like from what you're saying that if you accept the premise that we geared our immigration system towards at least something that facilitated economic integration, then a lot of the undocumented problem would go away because it would be a lot more rational, it would be a lot more streamlined. And a lot of the people that are now undocumented would be documented and they might not be citizens, uh, they might not be permanent residents, they might be here temporarily, but they would be counted and they'd be out of the shadows and everything would just be a little bit more sane, a little bit more normal. Uh, Is that a fair characterization of, of what you just said? Right. I mean, we as a National Academy of Sciences report don't make any recommendations politically about what should be done about immigration. What we can say is what is happening now in terms of integration is that we have a little over 11 million undocumented immigrants and we have a partial integration of them. So they haven't been stopped from coming into the country. Many of them have now been here for over a decade. The actual length of time that the undocumented have been in the U.S. keeps growing because we, we're not having much net new undocumented immigration. So these people are going to church. They're s- sending their children to school. They're having children who are American citizens. They are working. They are saving money. They are buying houses. At the same time, we're preventing them from becoming full citizens and becoming politically integrated, and they are hiding from the ICE agents and the police. So we have a kind of quasi-integration policy where there are now many mixed-status families where uh, the father or the mother are documented or undocumented, and the children are born in the U.S., so they're U.S. citizens. So we have uh, over 4 million kids who have one or the other of their parents are undocumented or both. And that's 7% of our K-12 school population. So we have a very high number of people who are affected by this legal limbo. And it's not stopping them from integrating completely. It's creating roadblocks to to their partial uh, or full integration. Yeah, this was a striking uh, stat in the report. Uh, Four and a half million kids who are U.S. citizens Uh, but who have undocumented parents. Uh, There's another stat in there uh, showing that actually the U.S. has a very low rate of citizenship compared to uh, the OECD average, 50% versus 61%. What exactly does that stat tell us, and what is its significance? So, yes, the the U.S. does have a, a low rate of naturalization compared to other countries, and we tried very hard to try to understand why that was happening. And uh, we investigated a number of different uh, hypotheses. It doesn't look like it is the cost, although it is uh, costly for people to try to naturalize. The U.S. doesn't do very much in terms of helping to facilitate naturalization. So, for instance, immigrants don't get a notice when they've been here. You have to be here five years after after you've come with a green card before you can naturalize. We don't send a notice saying, 
your five years are up, you can come take the citizenship test. That would be something pretty simple that would encourage people to naturalize. We don't yet do that. We don't have the same kind of institutions that helped people naturalize 100 years ago. People aren't in unions or in civic organizations. We don't have the local political party working hard on that in a very um, on-the-ground kind of way. But we really couldn't answer the question about why the naturalization rate is so low compared to other immigrant-receiving countries. It, it remains a puzzle. Oh, that's interesting. And let me ask uh, what might be a kind of a difficult question because it's just so broad. But it's something I, I've heard before. And it's an argument that I usually hear from immigration restrictionists, but not just from the sort of, you know, haywire ones. I mean, even from very thoughtful immigration restrictionists, which is that in the past, there have been waves of a lot of migration to the U.S., uh, in particular at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century. And then that was followed by a period uh, where there was much less immigration, uh, especially after a couple of laws were passed in the mid-1920s that severely restricted uh, annual immigration flows. And their thinking was, yes, okay, so we had that period where there was a lot of migration and the share of the foreign-born population back then was about the same as it is now, but because it was followed by this period where there was much less immigration, that essentially what happened was that the American economy and the American society, uh, whatever that means, was able to absorb that previous migration flow. And then they say, well, you know, we've had quite a lot of migration in the last few decades. Uh, you mentioned the law change in 1965. And so maybe what we need now is another period where there's less migration so that we can absorb the earlier waves of immigrants and so that we can integrate them. I don't myself buy this, but I guess I'm wondering what we learned about that approach uh, from uh, the kind of research that you've done and from what's known about immigration uh, integration? Well, I would say that it it's, seems like a solution in search of a problem. And once again, it's it's a problem that that when you look factually at what's happening is is not really a problem. So across everything that we measured, across all of the different sociocultural, socioeconomic, political measures, immigrants are becoming like the native-born. And in general, they're doing it more rapidly than European immigrants did 100 years ago. So, for instance, Mexican-Americans are learning English and are speaking English at a more rapid rate than Italians learned English 100 years ago. And so the question of whether we need some kind of hiatus in order to integrate people it is something which perhaps you would want to think about if people weren't integrating. But what we found, and actually I think it surprised all the people on the, on the panel, was the real force of integration in the U.S. Uh, despite the racial and ethnic differences, despite the fact that people are coming from all over the globe, there's something about American society that is very good at integrating immigrants. And the immigrants come to resemble native-born Americans quite quickly. You know, it's not overnight, and perhaps that's what Americans are noticing uh, when they think, well, people aren't speaking English. Uh, they're, they're not taking into account how long people have been here and the generational processes. 
But across everything that we measured, integration is proceeding and it's proceeding quite rapidly. So that would be one answer to that question about a hiatus. And the second answer is that we live in a really globalized society. So we live in a world in which there is uh, very much integration across uh, national origin lines in terms of media, in terms of air travel, in terms of all kinds of different things. And the idea that you can just turn off the spigot and stop immigration, I think, is uh, without becoming uh, some kind of uh, police state, is, I think, quite naive. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You mentioned just a second ago, I think your exact words were that there's something interesting or there's something unique about American society and being able to uh, integrate immigrants. Um, Can you maybe draw a comparison between uh, the U.S. and the success of, for instance, European countries in terms of integration? Because, again, uh, a lot of what drives the conversation is that waves of migrants a lot of times end up inflaming populist sentiment in the countries that experience these inflows. Uh, A lot of times uh, they point to Germany, but there are also uh, arguments that this is what happened in France and this is what happened in the UK with Brexit. Can you just uh, give us some sense of how the U.S. perhaps uh, distinguishes itself in this regard, as I think you just uh, alluded to? Right. Yes, all the European countries, the Western European, Southern European countries are are trying to cope with immigration now and trying to understand how best to integrate people into their societies. And I think one of the very strongest assets that we have in America is our long history of seeing ourselves as a society that is created and renewed and and enriched by immigration. So the idea that you can be Chinese-American or Mexican-American or Irish-American is itself as American as apple pie, right? The idea that you can be a hyphenated person with immigrant roots but very much an American is something that I think we've very much celebrated in our history and is, is something that immigrants sense when they get here, that it's not that they have to choose between being ethnically Chinese and being full American citizens. And that is something that I think Europe, many European countries really struggle with. So, for instance, France has a very strong assimilationist approach, and they don't really recognize you can't be an Algerian French person. You're Algerian when you first arrive and then you become French and you should not have a hyphenated identity. And Germany also is coping with this question of how do you become German? Whereas becoming American does not mean that you're giving up what you came with. You are Uh, celebrating that, but also being integrated into American society. And that's a great strength that we have and that immigrants themselves pick up on as soon as they get here and celebrate. Yeah. And uh, something that I I think is tied to that and which I think we kind of skipped over earlier when we were going through the point by point list of socioeconomic and sociocultural uh, measures was the family, the impact on uh, American families of um, immigration And also, really interesting, towards the end of the report, uh, intermarriage rates have been increasing recently, and I thought that was also something interesting. Can can you just elaborate uh, on those two things? 
Yes. So in terms of the family, immigrants actually are the group that are least likely to have kids out of wedlock, are most likely to uh, remain married. Um, They have lower divorce rates. And so immigrant kids are the most likely to, among all kids in the U.S., to grow up with both parents in the household. And over time, they become more like native-born Americans, and so the second generation has uh, higher out-of-wedlock births, and they have higher divorce rates. And so the third generation grow up in more single-parent households. One of the things we were very much charged with was understanding how immigration was transforming American society, because integration is a two-way street. Immigrants change because they come here and become more like native-born Americans. But native-born Americans change because immigrants have come and changed the society. And historians looking back in time can really see how Americans were changed by earlier waves of immigration. But in the middle of it, it's very hard to measure how are we changing because immigrants are coming. But one way that we can see it is in intermarriage patterns. So one out of seven marriages now in the U.S. crosses the major racial and ethnic lines between whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. And these intermarriages are very much fueled by immigration uh, because immigrants will have high amounts of intermarriage with the native-born and by the second generation across racial and ethnic lines. So this is one way in which immigration is transforming American society and the line between them and us is really dissolving as immigrants become us and we become them. And that is a very strong factor in, in uh, integration as well. Yeah, one final question, Mary. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that one of the report's recommendations was to fix the data lapses. Can you take us through uh, a couple of the other uh, recommendations uh, and any in particular that you would emphasize? The report really restricted our recommendations to be about the data that the government collect. So we also very much stress that it's important because integration is a long-term process that we continue to gather data on the children of immigrants so that we can look at generational progress. And those were really the important recommendations that we made. The rest of our, our findings are really about how immigrants are doing in American society and the political questions about how to change our immigration system or what to do about undocumented people. We lay out the facts, but that's a political question and not a scientific one. Mary Waters, uh, thanks so much for being on Off Chat. This was a real treat. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to do it. And that is the end of my chat with Mary Waters. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. for our overseas listeners. Uh, Email us at alphachat at ft.com. And for show notes to this episode and all other prior episodes, uh, go to ft.com forward slash alphachat. Also, I know I repeat this every single week. It gets kind of boring and repetitive. But if you go to Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes, uh, and you leave us a review or a rating, uh, we see every single one of those. We really appreciate it because it also helps people find out about the podcast. 
I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia, and I want to give a special thanks to Heidi Shin for helping to produce and record uh, Mary Waters' side of the conversation. Uh, and finally, this episode may have been about the ways in which immigrants integrate into American society, but I kind of think that all native-born Americans should have to integrate into whatever society Canadian Amy Keene designs. Thanks, as always, Amy, for producing and editing Alpha Chat, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.